Well, good morning, Oakwood Christian Church Second Service. Hey, we had a great first service today. We had a baptism in first service today, so I want to let you know about that. A great time of celebration. One of our youth, the one to Christ and youth with us a couple weeks ago, um, got baptized into Christ Jesus this morning. And so I want to share that good news uh, with you that it's just such a good time to be a part of the Oakwood Christian Church family as God just continues to mold us and shape us into who he wants us to be in Christ Jesus. Now, today we're starting a new series. It's called He Speaks Deep. Now, if you're an English person, you may say, well, hey, it should have been He Speaks Deeply, okay? But this is, a, this is by design, okay? He Speaks Deep because uh, what we're going to talk about in this series is how God spoke through his son Jesus. We're going to be looking at specific passages of Jesus of how Jesus spoke to people in a deep way with a deep message that would take them from what they thought they knew from, from a place that I would say like conventional wisdom to kingdom wisdom. And it was through his teaching, and you have to understand, he's Jesus, right? The Son of God. The best speaker of all time. The best preacher of all time. And yet there were times where people would hear his message, and I think sometimes they wouldn't get it. Sometimes they just wouldn't apply it. And sometimes it just challenged them so much that they walked away because they didn't understand the depth at which Jesus was challenging them in their faith. It's my prayer that as we enter this series together, that we would venture into deep places with Jesus over the next several weeks. And I appreciate uh, the uh, five Sundays since I have preached, and we had Alan preach and Corey preach, and just want to say how much I appreciate them. I knew the preaching was in good hands with our staff, and um, just want to say how much I appreciate those guys and uh, covering for me uh, for the last few weeks. I've been working on some other things. So um, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to turn to Matthew chapter 5. So if you have your Bible, turn there. First book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew's Gospel chapter 5 is a famous passage that we know as the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus went up on a mountainside with his disciples and his, uh, some other followers. He sat down and he began teaching them. And if you read the whole sermon, it's, Matthew's, it's Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it focuses on something that all of the Bible focuses upon. You could put a summation of all of Scripture in really one thing, relationships, in two ways. The Bible is about relationships, and the Bible is about your relationship with God, your heavenly Father, and the other parts of the Bible are about your relationships with other people. Today, we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus specifically deals with how we relate to other people. How do we relate to God's people? How do we relate to just other humans on the earth? Jesus goes deep here because he explains how people are to function as kingdom people in relationships when times are tough, when relationships are strained. And in his teaching, there's this nuance that I want to share before I read the passage. You'll hear it today, and you'll hear it two different times. If you read the Sermon on the Mount in its entirety, you see that Jesus goes back to this several times. And this is what he says. He says, you have heard that it was said... And then he'll pause, and about a verse later, he'll say, but I tell you. And let me explain the little nuance here of what Jesus is doing. He's taking conventional wisdom and then comparing it up against Christianity. He's taking this conventional wisdom of the way the world thinks and the way we perceive the world, and then he's turning it on its end and saying, this is the way that the kingdom works. 
You have heard that it was said this way, conventional wisdom, but I tell you, this is the way it is in the kingdom of God. Let's begin there. Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 21. I don't know what your uh, section heading in your Bible says there, or if you're in the app this morning. Mine says murder. Okay, so, so I don't know. Maybe we're having a sermon on murder. Here we go, 20, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Conventional wisdom. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka. Now, now we read a word like that in English today, and we're like, what is raka? And, and they're like, you know, should I say that? Is that like, you know, a cuss word from Aramaic or, you know, from the Greek? That, that word is a term of contempt for another human being. Uh, most scholars uh, believe that word means good for nothing. If someone were to say raka, they're saying that person is a good for nothing. Some other scholars say stupid. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, good for nothing, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer. And you may be thrown into prison. And truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Man, did it get deep in there? I mean, we're talking about murder. You've heard it said, if you, you know, if you murder someone, anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And, and he says, you've heard that it was said. That's the conventional wisdom. And everyone in the world would probably agree with that. And then Jesus goes deep. And he says, but I tell you that if you are even angry, he compares murder to anger. First thing I think I want us to get out of this passage today is that there is much rooted in anger, even murder. I think that's where Jesus is wanting to begin as he's teaching in this part of the sermon. He's, he's saying, hey, just like you guys would say, hey, murder is bad, a murder comes under judgment, but I tell you that even being angry with someone, the anger can bring you under judgment. And the fact is that anger doesn't lead to anything good in life. You might have been there. You might have experienced that. In fact, you might have encountered people that are angry. Do you, do you have a friend or an acquaintance or someone who's angry? I mean, they're always spun off about something. Just, you know, ah, oh, man, this. And, you know, and you're around these people, and you're like, golly, man, just they're just angry. They're, they're angry at the people driving cars on the road beside them. And then they get home, they're angry about dinner. And then they're at work, and they're, they're angry about everything going on at work. And then they're angry about their social activities. And they're angry at their friend. And they're just angry all the time. And, we have a tendency, when people come off to us as they're angry about something, is to want to what? To pull away, right? Pull away, ignore, well, let's back out of that thing. Now, there are a few people that naturally in their personality would just love to engage the anger, but most 
would shy away. Do you remember how we were taught as kids to cope with anger? I remember these coping mechanisms, and I, I remember thinking, you know, is this really, is, is this really working out? Know, did you remember the very first thing you should do if you were really, really angry? Stop and count to 10. Like counting to 10 stops anger. I'm really, man, I'm so ticked off. One, two, three, four, five, seven, nine, ten. You know, oh, I feel so much better. <laughs> so redeeming. Yes. I remember also hearing that if your anger was turning you to, to just, you know, you wanted violence out of your anger, um, that you should punch a pillow. You know, that if you were violent toward your bedding, then you wouldn't punch people. And so you should punch your pillow, beat up your bedding, and then everything else will be fine. And and there's definitely something to this anger thing. I mean, Jesus wouldn't be teaching on it, especially so early in his Sermon on the Mount, if there wasn't something to it. Because, see, many times if we let anger get a hold of us, anger can lead to sin. Counting to 10, we can make fun of that, but sometimes I think it's actually good to take time and to cool down and to think and to pray and to consider. That didn't used to be me. Uh, I was a quick responder, maybe a first responder, right? Somebody, somebody said something, they sent that text or that email or something, I would just respond right away and I would do it with all the anger within me. But I've learned through the years, and this part of, me is having, part of this for me is having a great spouse, um, that you know, through Amy's coaxing, through me growing up and becoming more mature, that I don't respond. A lot of times now I will sit on a response because I want to make sure that I get over my anger. Because the anger in me doesn't lead to anything good or positive. And, and that's what Jesus is saying here. There's just so much rooted in anger and even murder. If you think about it, it makes sense. If you're actually going to murder someone, you're actually going to think about or plan to or actually go through with taking someone's life. Why do you do that? It's because you hate them. Why do you hate them? Because you're angry with them about what they have done to you. And Jesus says, hey, even in those times where you're super ticked off, the goal here is peace. But we need to remember there is much rooted in our anger. It leads us to the second application this morning. We must forgive others. Ah, there we go. Christianity 101, right? The whole forgiveness thing. We have to forgive others. We are called by God to forgive others. Living out the Christian life and bringing about the peace of God into life, into situations, and even into our own lives, we must forgive others. Go back to verse 22. Jesus says, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. We read that and, and sometimes that's hard for us to understand because, you know, we don't per se have this, you know, altar and we're not act, offering sacrifices on it like they were in the Old Testament. I believe that Jesus was actually addressing two levels of thinking here. The first being to the Israelite of that day, uh, bringing their animal sacrifice into the courts and getting ready to offer the animal sacrifice and then remembering, hey, I got this brother or sister that I've harmed. I got these people that are mad at me or holding this against me or whatever. I should go to them. I think the second level of understanding of this 
is that before we offer our sacrifice of praise to God, that sometimes we need to do a heart check. And we need to be thinking through, man, is there something unsettled with me and a brother or sister in Christ? Is there something that I have done? Maybe I, I, I've responded in anger. Maybe I've, I've attacked somebody. Maybe, you know, and, and we get to this point and it's like, man, I, I've got to do more than cope with this. I, I need to go have a conversation. I'd say it's beautiful when you see this happen. I've actually seen it happen live in person in the sanctuary before. Just because I had knowledge of the situation during worship service, I saw someone get up during the first song, walk across the sanctuary and grab someone and walk out to the lobby. And they talked some things out that had gone on and then they came back in and it was amazing to see the countenance of their worship before and after that conversation. Why? Because there was release, because there was understanding, because there was forgiveness. When we hang on to things, it can hinder our worship. We don't have a clear mind and a clear conscience, knowing that we have done our part. It is an expectation of us to forgive and not to remain angry in unforgiveness because this is what Christians are called to. This, in essence, is the Christian life. And the scary thing for Christians if, is that it hinders God from forgiving us when we won't offer forgiveness to others. You see, an unforgiving spirit is inconsistent with a person who has been completely forgiven by God. There's parables that talk about this in Scripture. You remember the unmerciful servant, right? He goes, he can't pay his debt, and so the master says, I'm forgiving you of your debt. Then he goes, and he owed like tons of money. We learned at a conference a couple weeks they believe like two, three million dollars, tons of money he owed. He goes to somebody that owes him like a hundred bucks and has him like thrown into prison. You're like, well, that's not right. Well, that's not right in the kingdom of heaven either. Because God says, I have forgiven you, so you in turn forgive others. Because if you don't, well, just a little bit later in this sermon, if you turn over to chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, it says this. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. You see, there's repercussions to us when we hang on to things and we don't forgive and release and let go. Now, I know that forgiveness is hard. I know that some of you are sitting in this room and you know I have deep woundedness because of what someone has done to me. I have deep woundedness because of something that was done to me by people. Maybe, maybe it wasn't now, but maybe it was earlier in my life. And God would tell you to forgive those people, to let it go. To not wish upon them the harm and the judgment that they probably so rightly deserve. But because of who Jesus is, because of what he's done for us, as Christians, we are called to forgive. We must forgive others. And then Jesus continues in the deep. He goes even further in depth. The third thing this morning that I think applies to our lives is that we need to settle matters quickly before things get out of hand. 
Settle matters quickly before things get out of hand, before molehills become mountains. It's beautiful in Scripture because it lines out that we are to go to one another first. And then we might involve a friend or two. And then we might involve, you know, spiritual leaders in God's church. But, but the Bible it says it beautifully because it's something that can be small. It can be worked out just brother to brother or sister to sister or brother to sister. But when we start involving other people and when it festers and it seems like time has passed, it grows and grows and grows. And I think that's what Jesus says this in verse 25. Settle matters quickly with your adversary. Who is taking you to court? So you know by the context of that verse that there already has been some time, right? I mean, you don't go to court like the next day. You know that, right? It's like years. So you know, two, two years, you know, you might get to court then. And so so here he's saying, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. When you're in the car, grab the cell phone. When you're walking into the courtroom, do it while you're still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to a judge. And the judge may hand you over to an officer. And you may be thrown into prison. And then she says, truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You could be prosecuted to the letter of the law and have to pay the price of whatever the law says, even to the last penny. And so, again, can't we work on reconciliation? Can we work on forgiveness? And can we settle matters quickly before they get out of hand? Have you ever had that happen in life? Something that was really small, it was like a molehill, and it became this mountain. And like six months later, it's like this huge deal, and it was such a small deal but no one ever talked about it, no one ever dealt with it. Before you blow up, before you get a third party involved, AKA, before you get your pantsuit off, right? Settle matters quickly. The other application I think of this passage in, in regards to judgments in a court is, have you guys always agreed with every judge's decision? Like, have you ever had a time in life where maybe you were watching a case or you heard about a case or you read about a case or maybe you had firsthand knowledge of a case and you thought it would go one way and it went another way? I mean, can we not forget that the courts and judges are human and they can be open to errors and mistakes? I mean, have you agreed with every decision you've ever heard a judge bring down? If we're being honest, we would say, well, no, not, not 100% of the time. Here's the deal. Settle matters quickly before it even gets to that level, Christians. Settle matters quickly. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27 puts it this way. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Because anger doesn't lead to great things in your life. So don't let, the, don't let the sun go down on it. Go and settle matters quickly. Do not give the devil any traction in your life because you know that when you're ticked off, bad things can happen. I think back in my life and I think of some of the things that I've said, maybe not the things I've done, but things that I've said to harm people because I was angry. They had ticked me off, they, they made me so angry and in that moment, I said something that I knew I shouldn't have. And when you speak those words, it's really hard to get them back, isn't it? The sad truth is sometimes we do this in our marriages. You know, you're really frustrated with, with your husband or your wife, your, your spouse, and, and you're going at it, and it's like, oh, and a one up here, one up here, one up here, and then comes 
what I call the low blows. The things that you shouldn't say is because you know they're really going to hurt them. And in anger, it's always in anger, right? It's in anger that you would say those things to your spouse. And it just sends them to this place. And how many times has that happened? And then like two seconds later, you thought, why did I say that? Anger. Anger. And not letting things fester to settle matters quickly. And you read this, and you're like, okay, man, okay, yeah, this, this is hard. This is hard stuff. I mean, Jesus is giving the disciples, the followers here. He's, you know, he started out with murder, and hey, if you're murder, you're subject to judgment. Now, I'm going to go a deeper level. If you're angry, and you stay in anger at people, and you don't forgive them, and you don't let some things go, that you are also in trouble because of the judgment that could come. He even mentions the fires of hell. And then it goes on. He says, hey, if you're trying to worship, trying to offer a gift to God at the altar, settle the matters quickly. And then he goes in the next section about settling matters quickly. And, and even while you're still on the way to the court, try to settle the matter deep, hard teaching. But then Jesus goes even a little deeper as you go deeper into the Sermon on the Mount. Same chapter, chapter 5, but verse 43. Listen to what Jesus says. Conventional wisdom. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's the way the world works. You love your neighbor, love your friends, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We got some rain this weekend. Hallelujah, right? I mean, I heard some people complaining already this morning. It's going to be muggy this week. I'm like, I don't care. It's like we need rain. Need some water up on the earth, right? Did you know that when it rained this weekend, it rained on the righteous and the unrighteous? The pagans, you know, the people that drive you nuts, maybe even some of your enemies got the same rain that you got. And yet Jesus says what here? Go back to verse 45. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. Because he causes the sun to rise on evil and good and sends rain on righteous and unrighteous. If you love those who love you, that's the easy part, right? What reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, I like the way it's worded there. It's, a, you know, my, my, my people, my posse, my friends. If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? They love to greet their peeps and love on their peeps and be kind to their people. And then Jesus summarizes it by saying, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Man, that is a big ask. That is something deep. To live out these passages today takes something deeper than surface level, shallow Christianity. I think the surface level, shallow Christianity has probably lived out pretty well. 
But when Jesus says something like, hey, love your neighbor, but also love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, you see, what you don't realize is Jesus knows exactly what he's saying. He knows exactly the results that will be produced in this. Because guess what, folks? If you will love your enemy and you will pray for your enemy, it may not change your enemy, but it will change you. You'll be a completely different person. Completely different person. You will be surprised at how God can use that change in you to salvage relationships. It might salvage a marriage. It might salvage a friendship. It might salvage a business partnership because you've decided, I'm not going to merely listen to the word. I'm actually going to do what this says. And Jesus says I'm supposed to forgive others. I'm supposed to let some things go. He says, he says that I need to settle my matters quickly. And he says that even when people go from the strained friendship category into the enemy category, that I'm to love them. And I'm to pray for them. Folks, I've done this. And I'm just telling you, it works. It is really hard <laughs> to love and pray for someone that is doing you wrong. But sometimes you can't change them. But it's the work that God does to change you that is the greatest work. And actually is the most beneficial to you. You think, well, having them get theirs, you know. You don't know what they did. They deserve that. You may be, you may be absolutely 110% right. You may be right, but sometimes forgiveness and love and going to pray for someone that you're, you're in disagreement with or someone that has maybe gone from the friend category to the enemy category really is something that God uses to change your heart. He uses it to change you. That's why we're called to love and pray for our enemies. He said, hey, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And if you're like me and you're just like, why? It's because this best reflects the heart of God. It best reflects the heart of God. Do you know why? Because the Bible says in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. How does he demonstrate his own love for us in this? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When Christ died, it wasn't because people were starting to repent. People, people are finally living their life for God. They're finally keeping his law and obeying his law. No. While we were still sinners, there's other parts of the Bible that say enemies of God. While we were still enemies of God, God loved us so much that he sent his son into the world to die for us. And our sins crucified Jesus. And Jesus says, because of what the Heavenly Father has done, because what I have done, would you, as he teaches us in his word, go deeper, 
and forgive and let some things go and pray for those that persecute you and pray for those that are coming against you and learn how to love them again, to see them as God sees them, as broken and messed up and confused and and maybe even dabbling in some darkness. That maybe the best way to win those people is to bring them over to the light by your example and by your love and by your attitude and actions toward them. That you're not judging them, that you're not coming against them, but you're choosing to pray for them and to love them because that's the heart of God toward us. And brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, this is what true Christianity is and true Christian faith, how it's walked out. I know it's deep, but it's possible through the power of Jesus.